Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. have started randall we're, we're doing more, we're more we're more organic these days than we used to be in, instead of formal but uh contact mm, of like the, contact at the cabin uh you just got back you were there with the grimerica guys and i just want to know how it went where you guys where you guys ended up what you did um did you find out anything that was interesting well, yeah, you know, the way it was set up, there was three groups that came in over the 10 days. And so I basically took each of the groups to Chimney Rock and to Mesa Verde. And then yes. the fourth, the third group, we had an extra day. So I took them up to, it's called Treasure Falls. It's on Wolf Creek Pass, which is pretty much right on the Continental Divide, northeast of Pagosa Springs. Um, so, and that was a great hike up to see this uh waterfall called treasure falls which um comes off of a basalt upland there and yeah so so it was primarily mesa verde the green table um looking at the cliff dwellings and these other uh chacoan cultures this was one of the chacoan outliers um and then chimney rock which is um two pinnacle rocks that are um, just southeast, southwest of Pagosa Springs that can be seen from uh, 
90 miles away out in the south uh, from another mesa top and apparently was being used as a signal tower and an astronomical observatory. So as part of this whole Chaco complex that covers the San Juan Basin and contiguous areas of Four Corners and southern San Juan Mountains uh, in that area, spills over um, into Arizona, for example. Canyon de Chez is probably an affiliate um, group there with the Chacoans. So it was quite a, uh, an elaborate system, community, culture that they had set up, you know, a thousand years ago in the deserts, which weren't apparently so desert-like then, and um, they mysteriously disappeared uh, around the mid-1200s and left this amazing architecture um, that we now look at and wonder about. And like so many other ancient cultures, they were obsessive sky watchers. And so their whole complex, uh, over, covering over 10,000 square miles, was all laid out um, according to the patterns of the sky and tracking mostly lunar and solar motion. Um, so, yeah, so that's what I was... I, I chose this place because I wanted to learn more about the area. I'd never been to Mesa Verde. I'd been to Chimney Rock uh, twice, but only climbed it once um, because the second time I went in there, it was nasty weather, and they weren't letting anybody in. Yeah. So I took three groups back. So now I've climbed Chimney Rock a total of four times and took three different groups to Mesa Verde, and we explored around. Um, there was a lot of overlap and similarity, but each each group we did a little bit different one. So I have a pretty good... Uh, picture in my head now of, of the whole uh, Mesa Verde, and I was one of the things that was really interesting to me was uh, that I wanted to explore was the the geomorphology of the plateau there because of, of the mesa because it's uh, it's deeply dissected with these these enormous canyons. You know, this is the Chacoan people utilize these uh, overhanging uh, roofs of these canyons to build these. Uh, to build their their villages, um, you've probably seen pictures of them. Um, but I was really interested not only in the, the the cultural aspects of who these people were and what they were up to and where they came from and where they disappeared to, but also the the, the geology of the area and particularly Mesa Verde, and wanted to get a better understanding and get a big picture of how the existing landscape came to be because it's. It's it's rather bizarre, and I probably need to show you photographs of it or, or use Google Earth or something so you can see what I'm talking about. But um, like I said, well, it's it's deeply dissected by this labyrinth of canyons, and the canyons are up on top of the mesa, which is odd because the canyon shouldn't be a thousand, on the top of a thousand-foot-high mesa, right, because you've got deep valleys surrounding the the mesa so then the question becomes why any major erosional you know effects of flowing water would have just surrounded and gone around the mesa but how do you get that much water up on the mesa itself that it can cut a canyon you know six seven eight hundred feet deep um and i still haven't figured it out yet so, so I, I'm, I'm do you think that that, figure, that that figures into the 
kind of like you you know well your whole thing the common impact the cataclysmic theory the the onrush of water do you think that that the may figure into it somewhat yes I, I, and, I, and i wouldn't say i wouldn't stick my neck out at this point and say that all those canyons were created you know like at the end of the last ice age yeah um but you've got this isolated mesa um surrounded by deep valleys and then on top of it it's dissected you know with these deep canyons now the canyon floors are above the floor of the surrounding valleys but from the surface uh, the, the the mesa itself is almost level but it tilts to the south and in the runoff that that cut down these canyons was towards the south um so it was just generally when you have a, a major water flow, like if you if you um, think of any um, you know river, um, it's collecting streams, right? It's sure. got these tributary streams that flow into it, and then that river may be tributary to a greater river, right? And in a lot of places where you might have a canyon eroded, you know you've got a huge catchment basin feeding water into that canyon. You know you may have a hundred, two hundred a thousand square miles of catchment basin gathering the waters that are then funneled in to this one particular river valley that will then carve a canyon. But you don't have that on Mesa Verde. That's the thing I'm getting at. It's like, where's the catchment basin? The whole surface of the, of the plateau is dissected with these deep canyons. So were the canyons cut at some point before the, uh, the, the mesa was uplifted were they cut after the mesa was uplifted but in order to do that it means that these tremendous deep huge valleys that surround the mesa had to have been filled with material that's now removed so it's it's part of this whole mystery of the extreme erosion that has occurred on the colorado plateau um that I'm trying to figure out. It was the thing that the, the early geologists, uh, late 18, early 1900s, as they were traveling over the Colorado Plateau, um, looking at, at the, the extreme erosion, they came up with a term, and they call it the Great Denudation. The Great Denudation. And was it a single event? Was it multiple events? I don't know. But if you spend any time traveling over the Colorado Plateau, which would be, um, you know, Monument Valley, it would be the San Juan Basin, it would be Canyon Lands, it would be Arches, it would be, uh, El, um, it would be Shiprock, New Mexico. You have evidence of just extreme amount of material that has been stripped off the plateau, and. You know, you've got a lot of limestones in the upper layers exposed, like like a Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon is the outlet for the entire Colorado Plateau. So any waters, any rainfall falling over the Colorado Plateau, ultimately, feed, like the Green River comes from the north. You've got the San Juan River coming out of the San Juan Mountains. You've got the Animas River. Um, all of these rivers are feeding into the Colorado. And then, of course, it's the Colorado that runs through Grand Canyon. So Grand Canyon is like the drainage outlet off of the Colorado Plateau. And when you travel over it, you see that there's just this extreme amount of erosion. I don't know. Have either one of you guys been to Grand Canyon? 
Yeah, we both have, yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Okay. Same, you, same you trip I went to Grand South? Canyon. I went to uh, Mesa Verde as well, yeah, last year. Yeah, okay. Okay, well, then you kind of, you might know what I'm talking about, that you've seen those, the canyons there. Um, now, when you're, if you're stand if you're standing on the south rim of Grand Canyon, once upon a time, there was another mile of sedimentary rock over your head. And that whole mile of rock had to be stripped away before you could even begin carving Grand Canyon, you see. So it's just kind of an indication of how much erosion has taken place. Now, the question is, over what time span uh, was this erosion? Um, and was it uniform? Was it, was it uh, a, a, a consistent process? Or was it in episodes? Were there episodes of erosion? And I think clearly the evidence suggests there were episodes of erosion where the rate of erosion compared to what we see now is accelerated by orders of magnitude. And this process, if I had to conjecture, I would, I would guess that this process has been going on for 2.6 million years, which is takes us back to a geological boundary called the Pliocene-Pleistocene transition. And what differentiated between the Pleistocene, which followed the Pliocene, was that during the Pliocene, you had this long interval of relatively stable, warm climate. And somewhere between 2.5, 2.6 million years ago, there was a major shift. And the planet lurched into this oscillating sequence of glacial interglacial ages which we're probably still in the 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 last uh episode that played out would have been the the end of the last ice age at you know 12 or thirteen thousand years ago right because those those interglacial periods lasted i mean we're talking about tens of thousands of years for the interglacial or the glacial well the interglacial so technically we could actually we could still be in an interglacial right well, no, I think it's more the question that we would, are we still in a glacial? Um, because what, okay, I understand. what is yeah. now apparent from the quote-unquote chronostratigraphy is that uh, periods of interglacial warmth, such as we're in now, which is very distinct from the full glacial cold of the late Pleistocene, so distinct that we're now in a, 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 a different geological epoch, Yes. So the Pleistocene yes. gave way to the Holocene, right? Well, if you can go back using using ice core data and oxygen uh, eighteen isotopes uh, to determine which is a proxy for temperature changes, um, what it would suggest is that the longest interglacial period in the last, say, uh, minimum two hundred and fifty, maybe four hundred thousand years. The longest period of interglacial warmth is the Holocene, our present one. And as more data comes right, in... which is about, what, 10,000 years, 12,000 years? The date now for um, the Holocene is usually marked at 11,600 years ago. But The end really, of the Younger Dryas, right? The end of the Younger Dryas, right. Yes, yes. But even though the end of the Younger Dryas, it was still a very different world because sea level continued to rise post-Younger Dryas, up until between eight or 9,000 years ago. Roughly 9,000 years ago, sea level stabilized at the present level, uh, maybe five or six feet lower. But 
it was at that point that you could start now evolving coastal communities because obviously you couldn't you you couldn't establish a coastal community when sea level is still rising you know um, a couple of feet every century or more so what you see is that around nine thousand years ago once sea level stabilized and then with the stabilization of sea level you had sort of also a stabilization of the global climate by this time the post ice age vegetation regime had been well established and so really the 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 modern environment climatological environment really began say around 9000 10000 years at the earliest but i i would put it more between 8 and 9000 years so um so even though you say that the holocene started 11600 the world was still quite a bit different um because again, sea levels were probably 100 to 150 feet yeah. lower around that time, and the climate starts to kind of smooth itself out a little bit. Right? Exactly over 2,000 yeah, exactly years, right. 3,000 years, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I think you know, just like you know, when you have a big earthquake, oftentimes you'll have aftershocks. I suspect we're still seeing declining aftershocks from the Younger Dryas still to this day. I think a lot of the instabilities, uh, seismic instabilities and volcanic instabilities that the planet has experienced in the last few millennium may literally be a legacy of the extraordinary global changes that occurred during the Younger Dryas. Well, first of all, let me say, uh, uh, Mesa Verde, awesome place. I went there last year. I drove mm-hmm. up from the, ba- from the Grand Canyon through the Navajo country. Incredibly pretty drive. Yep. Uh, went to Mesa Verde. It was a goal of mine to see that place. And uh, the one of the interesting things that I found out that I learned there was that the cliffside dwellings that we see as this kind of great achievement of civil- civilization almost, and it, it wasn't it was an achievement, but that was their kind of um, almost last ditch effort that some kind of climate change or some kind of warfare took place where they had to hide in the, they had to hide in the cliffs. And so that, that actually, the, when they lived on top of the Mesa, they were a little better off. And then when they were living like on the side of the Mesa and the cliffs, they were a little worse off. So I found that, I found that mm-hmm. interesting as well. Yeah. It, I, it's a, uh, yeah. I, and I don't know what happened. I mean, I heard a number of different conflicting stories. I, when we went up to Mesa Verde, we went on several guided field trips. Um, yeah. And the stories varied depending on your guide. Um, it's an amazing place. Well, I can, I can add a little oh. anecdote. Uh, I'm from Arizona. have have family uh, that was involved in the conquest of New Mexico and Southern Colorado and Native Americans as well. But in Arizona, I grew up with a lot of Hopis. And as far as uh, genealogy and I guess the archaeological community is concerned now, they've finally come around to what the Hopis were trying to tell them for a long time, which was that they were the descendants of these, uh, of a lot of these groups uh, that of the cliff, cliff dwelling people. And now the Hopis in Arizona, where they are, they live on top of the Mesa. And so yeah. that, like what you said, Adam, as far as the yeah. living within the cliffs being some kind of, uh, having to fortify or having to avoid some kind of climate thing, you know, because naturally now their descendants live on top of the mesas. Right, and and the 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 word Anasazi, which is now kind of looked at as a derogatory term. Yeah, it's an old right. Navajo word. The Navajo word for ancient enemy. 
Yeah. So there's this thought that it was the Navajo or a precursor to the Navajo that actually fought these people. Right, but this is all, mm-hmm. you know, long spans of time that that uh, formal archaeology is just now really trying to get a hold on. I mean, this is only, you know, formal archaeology hasn't even existed for that long of a time, and these are, we're talking about thousands and thousands of years. We really don't have a, a real grasp of it yet. But it, it's it's very interesting stuff, and, and one of the things I learned that I, that I knew also, though, uh, but was really reinforced in the scale of the cultural interaction and exchange between the Chacoan people and other groups such as uh, Mesoamericans, uh, the Eastern, the Hopewellian groups in the Eastern Woodlands appear, appears to have been pretty extensive. Um, yeah. You know, with, with extensive trade networks um, in place. So, that was one of the things that it really helped to cement in my mind was this, the, that the, you know, you're thinking, you know, 10,000 square miles of the San Juan Basin, but then you realize that, you know, they are in contact with groups that are, you know, in the eastern woodlands of the uh, east of the Mississippi and in contact with presumably the Mayans. The Mayans were doing a lot of their building. Most of the, um, the Chacoan um, structures were being built between about 950 and 1250 A.D. So there was a lot of overlap there with the mound-building culture of the Mississippi Valley and the eastern woodlands and the classical Mayan that were building a lot of the, um, you know, the ceremonial complexes and so forth in the Yucatan. Yeah, why wouldn't so there it be? Seems like, yeah, exactly. Why wouldn't there be unless one was making the assumption that these groups were, you know, so primitive that they lived in complete isolation from one another. But obviously they weren't because they were trading with each other, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting, you know, and that's what Graham Hancock's book is addressing. I haven't quite finished it yet. I was almost done. I think I had three chapters left uh, when this Colorado thing came up. So I now have a... Uh, an, uh, the updated version. I had the pre-publication version that I was reading um, that still included typos and things like that. So I'm going to finish the book and see where he's going with it. Uh, but basically that's what he's addressing is this idea that, um, you know, there was a lot more going on prehistorically in North America than has been previously yeah. uh, Recognize. Well, and I guess it's what you could consider a continental civilization, whereas, you know, the same with ancient European history, you have different groups of people, but when they're all interacting and trading, it kind of forms a single civilization. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. So, so, so Graham Hancock's book, The America Before, I'm, I'm going through it as well. And this whole idea that, you know, you have the, um, well, the clo- it's a challenge, one of the many challenges to the Clovis first hypothesis, which I guess is what mm-hmm. it is, like 11,000 or 12,000 years ago. And they say that that I was the it, I think first... the first early Clovis appearance is about 13.4. Okay. And then they're gone at 12.9, basically. They've disappeared at the onset of the Younger Dryas. Okay. So that's generally you have the 
archaeological community has accepted that Clovis first. That's it. Uh, those were the first people that were here. But there's a ton of challenges, and one of the ones that strikes me that's fairly obvious is the one in Chile, which is called Monte Verde, which when you and right. Graham were in that um, interview on Joe Rogan show about uh, with um, what's the, what's the the skeptic guy that uh, Michael was on, Shermer. Michael Shermer, yeah. When you guys were on that show. You know, he kept saying Mesa Verde, which confused confused matters, uh, which was interesting. But, um, you know, we're talking about something that's like, I believe, 24,000 years ago or 28,000 years ago, about twice the number of time that uh, between us and the Clovis first. And this is in Chile. This, yeah. is, the, this is the tip of South America. Yep. So we have all these. And this is not the only challenge that... Um, Graham Hancock points out, he points out the, the Topper site, which I believe is in South Carolina, Albert Goodyear. Yeah, we um, we visited that site with, with Al Goodyear um, when, when yeah. Graham was researching the book. So I had the privilege and opportunity of getting in. It's a closed site, and it's on private property, but um, Goodyear arranged for us to get in, so I was able to see for myself the Clovis layer and the pre-Clovis layer that has dated to 50,000 years uh, old. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, there's, and Graham does talk about a lot of this in his book, These, the, the, the accumulating number of earlier dates that is pretty much blowing the Clovis first theory right out of the water. Um, now, the Clovis is, is still an interesting question in itself. Like, where did they come from? Because they show up very, you know, very suddenly, and then they disappear very suddenly. Now we can coinc- we can locate in time their disappearance with the onset of the Younger Dryas, but at 13, between 13.3, 13.4, when they first show up, I mean, where did they come from? I don't know. That's an interesting question in itself. Yeah, I, mean, I think I, I, it, it almost seems to me that there is this um, now this view that is coming into that is now coming into vogue, where they're looking at that there could have been many different kind of um, peopling of the Americas. You could have had the, the yeah. Beringian Strait. Um, he talks about in the book about the Melanesian um, DNA trace that is in a lot of the Native Americans in South America. And, you know, so there could be a possibility that you could have had some in some ancient time, we're talking tens of thousands of years ago, of this possibility of this immigration coming from the Pacific. So mm-hmm. I, 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 I think it's starting to change this whole idea of where Native Americans came from. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think we need to be open. To, we need to be open to the fact that, you know, Back in prehistory, there were peoples that were much more mobile than they've been given credit for. And these patterns of migration are a whole lot more complex than the very simple, you know, they came across the Bering Land Bridge when sea levels were lower and they came down through the the ice-free corridor, which it's plausible that people did migrate across. Right, right. But there's a lot more to the story, I think, than that. Well, in, and in all fairness, the the like the Bering Strait hypothesis being the only uh, you know the only way is also a imposed for an idea, and we're really dealing with 
because there was a history of uh, of like British Israelism, and you you had all these ideas that were really excessive, and at the bottom line, a lot of them racist. Um, there was such a distaste for a lot of alternative thinking for so long that now is really a time right. when we can get back to really talking about this stuff openly without uh, you know a lot of these old. Uh, old ideas of British Israelism, things like yeah, this, trying to Salutrian hypothesis, as right? Well, and the overemphasis on that, or you know, we're we're right. past all that now, so now we can really be honest and talk about this. But there was a distaste for a long time because of the excesses of a lot of that thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we can we can look at this with fresh eyes now and and reevaluate our own past. And I think you know that's one of Graham's messages is that that's important to do. And you know. From where I'm coming from, my interest in in the nonlinear, the the discontinuities within uh, the continuum of nature, which is the thing that I have focused on so much, and of course one of the corollaries of that is that if you accept this model that you know from time to time the shit hits the fan, you then have to uh, begin to think about how that is going to affect culture and society and human communities and, and so forth. And I think once you begin to look at that, you realize that there's no way that it could have had anything other than a very profound effect. Yeah, um, yeah. When, when, once it's understood how sweeping some of these changes were, you go, okay, I'm beginning to see now why this culture disappeared as right. quickly as it did. I think there's a lot to be found in the mythology of these peoples, and in particular, like the... With the Hopis, they have a series of cataclysms. I mean, I know that's in a lot of places, yeah. but they have this series of cataclysms, and they are actually the genetic descendants of these cliff-dwelling people. So maybe, like, exactly what you're talking about, there is a succession of cataclysms that has an mm-hmm. a, a old history that, that has been preserved, actually, and you can find it in mythology of different peoples around the world. Yeah, oh, yeah exactly. Sure. Peoples around yeah. the world. I mean, this is one of the, 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 the common legacy of mankind is that there are these traditions of these great upheavals and sweeping changes and things. Um, I mean, they're, they're universal from all over. You know, they involve great floods. They involve great fires. Um, you know, things that could be thought of as, as natural disasters, but on a, on a much greater scale than anything we've experienced, you know, in recent history anyway. Um, so yeah, and I think that's that's another big part of this shifting paradigm that we're in the middle of now is is understanding that the history of civilization is way more complex than we'd imagined and much deeper, and the history of climate and environmental change is a lot more complex. It hasn't been just everything um, changing on a gradual continuum of one drop of water and one grain of sand at a time, but there are literally periods, episodes where, you know, you have orders of magnitude of change compressed into a very short period of time. Yes. And yeah. I think that, that's a model we really need to begin to use to, uh, to frame our understanding of the past events, including the rise and fall of civilizations. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm about 200 pages into the book, and he is... Um, and with the part that I'm reading now, he's talking about South America, and he's talking mm-hmm, right. about he. So he makes this detour. Most of it's about North America, but he's talking about South America, and in particular, he's talking about the Amazon. And you know, he talks about um, the conquistador Oriana, who ended up sailing 
clear across the Amazon into the Pacific Ocean and seeing this amazing wealth of civilization there in the Amazon. Yeah. And this is built onto what what also was there, the um the um the the black soil essentially, the um the preta yeah. um that was there and that um this was something that wasn't caused by like kind of this cause and effect trial by error, but almost it seems to him, to Graham, that this was something that was taught to these people and the right. terra preta black soil because nothing can really grow effectively in the Amazon. It can for a time but then it can it can the soil gets depleted. But the the um the pre, the uh, terra preta allows it to be um mass produced essentially as in agriculturally. And so you've got and then you've got these different um You've got these different geometrical shapes that are in the Amazon. These things that correspond to the Nazca lines. You have right. the, like almost like the stone hinge that's in the Amazon. And a lot of this, unfortunately, now is being discovered because of the depletion of the Amazon itself <laughs> that's right. going on. And that um, so so this so people are discovering that there was a much more advanced civilization in the Amazon than, than previously thought. And Graham's whole concept is, is that they were getting some of their technology, some of the, 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 uh, Terra Preta and some of the other things about uh, even to down to like how to make ayahuasca from some other mm-hmm. kind of civilization. And that's utterly fascinating. Oh, it is. Yeah. The idea of a predecessor civilization that's been more or less lost to history. And that's been, one of the points of contention in Graham's work since the 90s. Um, yes. You know, you get the, the, the quote-unquote skeptics, you know, who will say, well, where's the, where's the pottery? Where's the evidence? Where are the, you know, where are the rusting, <clears throat> you know, rusting bodies of the SUVs they were driving? Where, <laughs> where is, um, you know, some evidence that there was a civilization 20 or 30,000 years ago and, or in the Ice Age? And the answer is as well, you know, you would probably expect to find some relic of some prehistoric civilization if the, you know, if the, the, the continuum of change went at the pace we've been seeing it for the last few centuries. But knowing, really, I mean, when you go back to 26,000 years ago, that's the onset of the last phase or late phase of in North America, the Wisconsin Ice Age, right? So you had this... Prior to that, for about 15,000 years, you had this major shrinkage of the ice caps over North America uh, back to just a, a small part of their of their maximum uh, size. And then <clears throat> around 26,000 years ago, suddenly they reversed, and in, instead of shrinking completely away, they started rapidly regrowing back. And we can see this correlated in sea level rise, which is interesting because Previously, it was the assumption was that the ice sheets were more or less intact for, you know, 100,000 years or longer, which would have meant that sea levels were depressed during all of that time, 350, 400, maybe even 450 feet lower than at present. But then <clears throat> studies in the 70s and 80s showed that when you had, once you had uh, radiocarbon dating online, for example, samples were taken 
not too far from, say, the Hudson Bay region, which would have been under mile and a half or two miles of ice, right, during the LGM or late glacial maximum. So here, here are uh, uh, um, remains of plants and spores and pollens. So you take these, they go and they radiocarbon date it, these samples, and they're showing up at, at 30,000 to 40,000 years old. Well, obviously, okay, if you've got spruce pollen growing here at 30,000 years ago, there wasn't a mile and a half of ice here, was there? Sure. So what this has done is confounded the whole problem of how rapidly glaciation can set in. So generally now it's, you know, the shift occurred around 26,000 years ago. And by 18 to 20,000 years ago, we were in the late glacial maximum and the ice sheets were at their largest extent by, you know, five or 6,000, maybe 7,000 years later. So then on the other end, we've got the rapid deglaciation that it still remains to be explained. Um, but the point is, is that it's clearly showing that the, how dynamic the climate really is. And, you know, I think the, the challenge now is to try to identify the drivers of this climatic dynamism here. What is causing, is it the sun? Is it changes in the, the interplanetary environment? Is it something endogenic or within the Earth itself? Is it fluctuations in carbon dioxide? But apparently not. I mean, if, you, if you're going by what the ice cores are telling us, which is, you know, the amount of, of carbon dioxide entrained in an air bubble, and then extrapolating from that and assuming that that the, uh, the, the amount of carbon dioxide in an air bubble is a proxy for the average global carbon dioxide atmospheric concentration, I, I think that's a highly questionable assumption. In other words, if you, if you go and you extract, let's say, a, a, an ice core, and it's, you know, um, a half a mile down into the ice, right, and you pull that up, that ice core is maybe five inches in diameter, and, you know, so you've got a five-inch footprint relative to the whole planet. You go down core, maybe 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 feet. You pull up. You're looking at an ice bubble that, that formed 100,000 years ago, say. You extract the bubble, and you look at how much carbon dioxide is in that bubble. And then you go, okay, well, if it's 250 parts per million in this bubble, then it was 250 parts per million over the whole planet. And I, I think yeah. that's a highly questionable assumption. But so right. I, I digress yeah. there a moment. But then one of the issues is, well, is the carbon dioxide reservoir naturally fluctuating? If you go by the ice core results, no, it, it has, it's been very stable for, for hundreds of thousands of years. And you, you regularly now hear the claim that, okay, carbon dioxide now at 410 parts per million is higher than it's been in 400,000, 500,000, 600,000 years, whatever right? Assuming then that it never varied beyond 250 to 280 parts per million. At some point, though, it, it did appear to drop even below 200 parts per million, which is dangerously low because that's the point at which photosynthesis starts to shut down. And so the question, you know, the, so again, there are many complex questions to try to determine what's driving these massive climate changes. It's my impression, having studied the carbon cycle, that uh, <clears throat> fluctuations in the ambient carbon con carbon dioxide concentration 
is a result of something else, not the cause. But what they've done now for the climate change models is they've put carbon dioxide in the driver's seat and ignored other potential variables in the equation. Uh, and I, I, I don't see carbon dioxide as being the thing that's driving the climate. In fact, there's other evidence to suggest that there were enormous fluctuations of carbon dioxide, but you have to go to different proxies for that. The ice core proxies seem to show a relatively stable uh, concentration of carbon dioxide, which would suggest then that when you go back into the Pleistocene and you look at these great oscillations of climate, what that would suggest is that, well, no, obviously carbon dioxide, if it remains stable, it's not driving these climate changes that are showing up in the oxygen isotope record of those same uh, ice cores. So there's a lot of unresolved questions here, and it just pisses me off every time I hear some idiot say the science <laughs> is settled and the debate is over, because, brother, it hadn't even started yet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it sounds like that. Because I, I think I've said this before, probably once when I had you on, was that you know it just seems to me like everything is in a system together so we're in the solar system and the sun obviously has to have some kind of effect on the on the climate of the earth i mean that that oh hell yeah should be an obvious statement that that, mm -hmm. that that's what's going on i mean i i don't doubt that maybe we have contributed somewhat to it but i think that there's a of lot more we and we, we've had so many climactic changes though at times that we didn't contribute to it. So I think it's just much more complicated than people say that it is. See, Adam, that's precisely my perspective on it. Yeah. So we, we have yeah the same idea on that. Um, but, you know, I, no question in my mind that the sun is the dominant factor here. And I think that there's a lot of studies. See, here, it's interesting. About the time the whole global warming scenario uh, got politicized in the early 90s. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was established, given a mandate to demonstrate the anthropogenic uh, influence on climate change. And generally, how that was interpreted as well, all we're going to do is we're going to focus on humans' role and we're going to ignore things like the sun. Well, you know, the thing is, is, is about that time is when we had a lot of the first uh, solar observatories satellites um, going online. Um, actually, it started in the 50s. There was something like 2,000 instrumented spacecraft um, sent up over the years between, say, the, the late 50s and the 80s. Um, and you had this intensive uh, an Earth solar program with Skylab. I don't know if you remember Skylab. Um, so I don't physically remember it, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we started making uh, satellite-based observations of the sun, and they accelerated through the 80s and the 90s. Um, so, like, what was it? John Eddy, who was one of the, um, uh, one of the scientific um, godfathers, I guess, of solar physics and, and studies of the sun, he, he wrote um, <clears throat> in 1975 uh, an article called A New Look at Solar-Terrestrial Relations. And that was post that you can see that, that um, you know, our understanding of the sun, there was the, the solar maximum mission, or uh, SMM, uh, the Sol Wind Expedition that created coronagraphs of the sun, um, and, and others. Um, SOHO was another one. Anyway, so 
we, we began in the 80s, 90s, and accelerating right up through into the 21st century, collecting all of this new data on the sun. And what the new data is showing is that the sun is way, way more variable than anybody was assuming, right? Because the term that was always used before was the solar constant, the solar constant, right? So the idea was that solar, you know, um, irradiance variability was about 0.01%, because, well, that's what we've observed in the last couple of decades, and which is true. But what we're also seeing is evidence that that is not always the case. There are times when the, the activity of the sun ramps up maybe an order or several orders of magnitude beyond what we have observed, say, just in, excuse me, the last few centuries. And uh, that, to me, is really, really important stuff. But it's still being neglected in the IPCC computer models. Because, again, the objective was to put carbon dioxide in the driver's seat. And so with that, with that mandate in mind, you know, it's written right into the charter of the organization, right? To, you know, you're going to explore the human imprint on climate change, which, which is a valid and important thing to do. However, again, what I'm saying is that the, that the science got hijacked um, basically uh, to demonstrate that humans now are the dominant cause of, of climate change. Yeah, focusing too much on factors, one aspect. You, yes, that's right. exactly it. Right. And, and I think now we're seeing that, yeah, solar proton events, coronal mass ejections, um, the solar magnetic field is a whole lot more variable than anybody was assuming, and and you know variability of the uh, sun's magnetic field uh, affects the intensity of the plasma rays striking the Earth. Um, then there's you know galactic rays that are probably emanating from the core of the galaxy or remnants of nearby supernovas that can impinge upon the Earth, and there's this dynamic interplay between the solar wind and galactic cosmic rays and the Earth's uh, uh, geomagnetic field, and really just the realization that the that the interaction of these of these various processes is a lot more complex than anybody had imagined but they can have an oversized effect on global climate and so yeah I, i'm saying you know we need to look at the whole picture here or we might get caught with our pants down thinking that if carbon dioxide is the only thing we need to worry about you know we might be unprepared for some of these other variables um, sure. That are very real. Well, and, and, and one of those variables would be what you talk about a lot, which is the the, the common impact stuff. Because the sun has a definite um, influence on comets. Oh, it does. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, the discovery of sun grazing comets is very interesting. Um, and shows that, yeah, that comets are playing a... Uh, a central role, perhaps. Let me see if I can pull up a quote here um, from some relatively recent work um, regarding, um, yeah, regarding the role of comets. Let's well, see. like uh, anything, they revolve around the sun, obviously, since that's the the most gravi- has the most gravitational mass in our solar system, and the. It, it's you, you, the whole idea of the comet tail comes from the fact that they're basically melting the closer they get to the sun. 
So you have that vapor, yes, that vapor plume, uh, yeah. They're also accelerating to high rates of speed. Um, as they're see, pulled in closer uh, Louis, to the sun, right? That's how it works? Yes, as yeah. they're drawn into the sun, the closer they get, the, the faster they're going to go. Um, so, yeah. Um, let's see here. Uh, well, here's here's Louise K. Hara or Hara. She's a, uh, a solar scientist who wrote back in... Uh, 2002 an article entitled explosive events on the sun appeared in the philosophical transactions of the royal society of london and she's saying this is 2002 uh she says these explosive events are poorly understood and yet occur in a variety of contexts in the universe ranging from planetary magnetospheres to active galactic nuclei understanding why flares and coronal mass ejections occur is a major goal across a wide range of space physics and astrophysics. Although explosive events from the sun have dramatic effects on the Earth, flares in other stars, for example, can be vastly more energetic and have an even more profound effect on their environment. And that's something else that's interesting. And, you know, in the last uh, decade or two, you know, the studies of, of uh, solar-type stars uh, there's about maybe a dozen or 20 of them that have been looked at now that have generally this, the mass of the sun, similar uh, radiant outputs, um, the size of the sun, and so forth. And what they're showing is in every case that we're looking at these solar-type stars, their variability is considerably more than what we've observed in our own sun in the last couple of centuries. So what is that suggesting? Is it suggesting that our sun needs to be thought of more uh, like these uh, highly variable solar-type stars, or our sun is, is unusual in being unusually stable? I don't know the answer to that question. But if, if the variability of some of these nearby stars that have been observed were to apply to the sun, we would be in a world of hurt here on planet Earth. So, Well, it kind of sounds like we've been in a world of hurt before. <laughs> Yeah. So here, here, here she goes on to say, we are now in the unprecedented position of having access to a number of space observatories dedicated to the sun. Um, the, the Yoko spacecraft, the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, the Transition Region and Coronal Explorer, and the Ramati High Energy Solar Spectroscopic Imager. So these cover a wide wavelength range from white light to gamma rays with both spectroscopy and imaging and allow huge progress to be made in understanding the processes involved in such large explosions. The, sh the high-resolution data showed dramatic and complex explosions of material on all, spatials, on all spatial scales on the sun. <clears throat> they have revealed that the sun is constantly changing everywhere, something that was never imagined before. Um, so, yeah, the sun appears to be a much more variable star, much more dynamic than anybody was imagining, you know, even in the 80s and early 90s. And when the whole question of, of you know, anthropogenic global warming came into the mainstream, all of this new knowledge about the sun was happening in tandem, parallel to that. But has it made its way into the national discourse about climate change? No. But it needs to. 
Yeah, no, it hasn't. You don't hear anybody talking about that. You know, you don't hear, oh, there were tornadoes. Well, it's obviously the, caused by climate change, or now it's the climate crisis. Um, but, yeah, and then she finally says much, This is, and she's writing in 2002, much has been learned over the past 10 years about the working of explosive events and their origin. The ultimate goal now is to understand the actual trigger of these spectacular events. And something you pointed out before, the, the focus of the ancient world on stellar phenomenon, you think, has to do with there being these past cataclysms. Yeah. And, and yep. in particular, we see sun, you know, I mean, it would seem obvious that the sun is the most prominent uh, symbol of life-giving force, but also perhaps, you know, there's been a focus on the sun and all these religions and mythologies because of the cataclysmic potential as well. Well, there was always the sun god, mm-hmm. you know, Helios, Apollo. Yeah, always. All that. Yeah. Well, and then we get to, to this, which now this is jumping forward to 2009 um, in a in a symposium uh, that was held um, called Universal Heliophysical Processes. And so this was published in the Proceedings of the International Astronomical Union. It was symposium number 257. And here's the abstract. Explosive evolution of nuclei of of sun-grazing comets, of sun-grazing comets, near the solar surface, which occurs at conditions of intense interaction between the solar atmosphere and falling high-velocity comet nuclei, as well as the relation of the phenomena of the character of solar activity are analytically considered. It is found that due to aerodynamic fragmentation of the falling body in the solar chromosphere and transversal expansion of the fragmented mass under the action of pressure gradient on the frontal surface, goes on and on anyways, the specific energy release in the explosion region considerably exceeds the evaporation sublimation heat of the body so that the process is accompanied by production of a high-temperature plasma. The energetics of such an explosive process corresponds to that of very large solar flares for falling bodies having masses equal to the mass of the nucleus of Comet Halley. So what he's going to, and then so the the solar wind observatory uh, on the the corona of the sun, the solar maximum mission, and the SOHO, which is the solar and heliospheric observatory missions, they all indicate, and this is quoting right out of that same proceedings, a continuous comet flow passing close to the solar surface or colliding with the sun. Passages of comet-like bodies, extrasolar comets, and near-young stars may be responsible for observed changes in stellar spectra. Uh, So he goes on to suggest here that um, the passage of comets near the solar surface is accompanied by aerodynamic fragmentation of their nuclei within the solar chromosphere and transverse expansion of the fragmented mass. The sharp stopping of this high-velocity fragmented mass is accompanied by production of a high-temperature plasma near the solar photosphere and by a solar photospheric flare. So in other words, what they're witnessed, to put, put this all more in layman's terms, is comet nuclei plunging into the sun at these extraordinarily high rates of speed, and then you have a plasma storm forming in the 
chromosphere in the aftermath of these sun-grazing comets falling into the sun. Um, and so this is very interesting. It's, it's leading to uh, the idea that they're, you know, in asking what's the trigger for, for these, um, you know, this, this solar activity. Then we come forward to 2015. We've got here uh, uh, that appeared in the Astrophysical Journal, uh, a, a paper entitled Destruction and Observational Signatures of Sun-Impacting Comets. Motivated by recent data on comets in the low corona, we dis discussed destruction of sun-impacting comets in the dense lower atmosphere. Extending earlier work on planetary impacts to solar conditions, we evaluate the mechanisms and distribution of nucleus, mass, and energy loss. Sun-impacting comets have energies comparable to magnetic flares. This is released as a localized explosive airburst within a few scale heights of the photosphere. Such airbursts drive flare-like phenomena, including prompt radiation, hot rising plumes, and photospheric ripples, the observ observability and diagnostic value of which we discuss. So in other words, again, in more layman terms, what's happening is you see a comet plunge into the chromosphere, and after it you see a, a solar storm. Um, so there's, there's this almost this symbiosis or connection between comets and the sun and the comets being pulled towards the sun and yes. the power the, the the power of the sun increasing and pulling more comets towards it so it's almost like this yeah. it's, it's a circle yes yeah. so going on in this um he's referring back to this a uh, 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 researcher who back in 1981 when a lot of this data was first becoming available this Isaac was his name, suggested that sun impactor momentum deposition could generate helioseismic waves and contaminate global helioseismic signals. Um, this was, idea was discussed briefly by Go Gao in 1994 in the context of Jovian seismic waves induced by the Shoemaker-Levy 9 impacts. Um, so... Anyways, he goes on to say here uh, that, you know, helioseismic waves, sort of a, a, a more vernacular term for that, that they introduce is sunquakes. Um, sunquakes following magnetic flares. The relationship between flare and sunquake properties proved to be complex. Some small flares producing very large quake signatures. Um, the lower altitudes, smaller volumes, and faster time scales of cometary airbursts compared to flares, together with their highly directed motion, make them seem more likely to generate stronger helioseismic signatures. In other words, the, the comets plunging into the sun are causing sunquakes, okay. which are, right, so that's what he's saying, helioseismic. We could just, instead of an earthquake, a sunquake. See, so it's inducing very, very distinct and detectable instabilities into the sun that lead to these solar storms. Now, these are very, these are small nuclei. So to me, the, what this raises the question is, what would be the corresponding response if you had a very large nucleus falling into the sun instead of a few miles in diameter, 50 to 100 miles in diameter? Yeah. What would be the re solar response that, <clears throat> or... 
what if you <clears throat> what if you had a succession of Im- impacts fall of comets falling into the sun during a period of concentrate like a comet storm which is which is a very feasible model that there may be times of extremely enhanced flux of comets to the inner solar system and those that don't hit planets or ultimately disintegrate into meteor streams and finally dust they're going to get swept up by the sun so let's let's assume that we've got an epoch where for maybe a few millennium you've got this enhanced flux of comets in the inner solar system large comets in in a lot of cases and so you've got this regular infall of these cometary masses into the sun and you know okay so we have one nucleus coming in and we see that there is a a sunquake that follows a solar storm there there may be a coronal mass ejection that 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 follows in the wake of this impact what if you had a series of impacts what if you had larger impacts where the mass of the object might be a hundred times or a thousand times greater than what we've witnessed in the last 20 or 30 years that is the kind of questions to me that we need to be asking but who's asking it you know i mean yes there are solar scientists that are looking at this and asking that but nobody's in mainstream media ever hears about them or their thoughts or their questions yet this is part should be part of the discussion of global change If you want your HR team to hire top talent for your company, tell them about ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your company's job posts, so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal, which helps us a lot. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, man, you're hiring. Let me ask you this. Okay, so so this brings to mind, you know, the, we're, we're talking about Graham Hancock. And I believe that he has kind of come over to the idea that, that, that you have been instrumental in espousing and a few others as well about this comet impact of the Younger Dryas. Now, Robert mm-hmm. Schock has this whole idea that, that it's not that, but it's some kind of solar maximum or some kind of coronal mass ejection. What you're saying here, then, could be that we're actually dealing with a combination of the two. Yes. Right. Yes. It's not an either-or proposition. And that's and and I've gotten I've heard a few things that would suggest to me that Robert might be modifying his views somewhat. But you know he, I think he's definitely onto something by by invoking the idea of a of a highly variable sun. Okay, so this brings me to, you know, since we're on the the subject of the common impacts, and uh, th- apparently this has been something that has been going. I mean, w- this is a cyclical thing, so this is something that that keeps happening. And you brought up something on another podcast about the Holy Grail and the Arthurian legend that I thought was just fascinating. Mm-hmm. And tying it in with, again, the possibility of some other kind of common impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's extraordinarily fascinating. Um, I... I 
don't even know where to begin talking about how fascinating it is. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, so, so, so what was extremely fascinating to me was this whole idea in the Arthurian legend. Now, whether you believe that this actually happened or not, I don't know, but the in Arthurian legend, you have Mordred, the son of Arthur, by his sister, which is kind of weird, but the at least that's what's in the movie Excalibur. So you have this battle, the Battle of Camlin, I guess it takes place, and there's some interesting correlations between that and some kind of really kind of extreme climate change in the 6th century A.D. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was. In fact, um, a number of paleoclimatologists using dendrochronological um, evidence have declared that 536 A.D., may have been the coldest year of the last 2,000 years. And Five, that fits 536 right the, AD? 536, yep. Okay. And then that was followed by a decade of extremely cold weather and the near collapse of, uh, or I would say the interruption of the biosphere in the northern hemisphere because <coughs> tree ring studies from both Europe and North America show almost a complete cessation of forest growth for almost a decade after 536 A.D. So something happened that fits, because, you know, the Battle of Camelon and the, the, the death of Arthur is usually given as about 539 to 540 A.D. And then, you know, you had the Justinian Plague, which swept over Europe in 542 A.D., which was the consequence of the, the uh, years of famine that had followed in the wake of successive agricultural collapses and people going hungry. And then, of course, you know, when you don't get enough to eat and your, um, your immune system is compromised because of malnourishment, that's when opportunistic diseases can, uh, you know, jump in and, and, and wreak havoc with, with people, and that's what happened. You had a... Uh, in the wake of the global cooling of 536 A.D., you had this succession of catastrophes. Yeah, this was the... Cultural collapse, famine, and then that was followed by the Justinian Plague in yeah, 542. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Justinian Plague. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the connection there, though, to the Holy Grail, this concept? Well, here, the idea is, is that, <clears throat> okay, the... The historical context of Arthur and the quest for the Grail is placed right there in the 530s to early 540s. That's 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 the context of those stories. Is that this the quest was taking place? You know, um, that Arthur's Round Table. You know, in other words, if he if he died at the Battle of Camlon in say 540 A.D., then that means the events leading up to that including the quest for the grail, <clears throat> would have been right in that time frame, you see. that That's the connection there. It's, it's simply temporal, chronological. It's, you know, in other words, you can go from the stories and you can extract this, these dates, you know, 536 to 540 A.D. as being uh, the time frame in which this whole um, story uh, is playing out. And then subsequent to that, you now have independent scientific evidence that, yeah, something, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, took place that was highly unusual and very extreme. And and what was the point? What was the purpose of the Grail Quest, if you recall? It was twofold, right? 
the king had gone into decline, and it depends on whose account you read, because they all vary a little bit. Um, you know, Wolf, Wolfram von Eschenbach doesn't give the same details as Robert Deberon or Chrétien de Troyes or the anonymous author of Harley Boo. But they all give different perspectives on it. And one of the themes that comes through regularly is the idea of the wasteland, that the kingdom, not only the king, but the kingdom itself, have fallen into decline. And, and what had been a fertile, um, fecund um, land went into decline. And this is when, well, you, you mentioned um, John um, Borman's movie, uh, yeah, Excalibur. Yeah, mm-hmm. You yeah. recall in there he's showing, now that that's primarily taken from Thomas Mallory's version of the Grail cycles. Um, yeah, which is kind of still, a culmination but, of all the rest of them, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. The right, Morte, right. So, Morte so, Arthur. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that's Mallory's version. So basically what's happening in there, if you recall, in the, as the, 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 the movie is coming... To, uh, it's up to its third act there, the, the kingdom has fallen in decline and people are wandering around starving and dirty and um, things look really miserable and dark. And, and they actually were dark. I mean, because what it's suggested now is that there may have been several agencies at work, including a couple of very large volcanic eruptions and possibly even an impact or two. There's a potential crater off the coast of Norway that's been named Grendel by its discoverers that appears to date right in there between 536 and 540 A.D. Really? So it's almost like you had this perfect storm of things that happened that caused this global downturn in climate. And in England might have been particularly hard hit. Northern Europe might have been particularly hard hit. And so what's interesting is in the Grail stories, You've got the quest for the grail, and the grail is the symbol of the thing that can restore not only the king, but the land as well. The land and the king are one. The land and the king are one, yes. So the grail is found. It's brought back. Arthur drinks from the grail. Now, in some of the stories, it's on Fortas. In other stories, it's it's the fisher king who is... is, um, you know, in ill, in Ill health or has a wound that won't heal. Um, again, there, there are variants in the story. None of the stories are precisely the same. They're, they're all kind of looking through their own lens at these events. But the, what to me is so interesting is that we now find out that precisely that period that is being represented in the Grail stories, there was actually something profound that happened. And that it really was the land did become dark the skies became dark um you know you had crop failures and you had displaced people wandering around the countryside like zombies um and the grail again the quest for the grail what was the grail the grail was the antidote or the remedy for this malady that had engulfed the kingdom you see so that that's the connection there that that you know, you've got this these stories of the of the of the wasteland, the encroaching wasteland, and the debilitated king, and the Grail becomes the means of restoring the health not only of the king but of the debilitated land as well. 
That's so, just, that's fascinating. You've got all the solar symbolism in the Arthurian court ideas, yeah. and then also what's been mythologized is the the end of the pagan era. So it kind of yeah. all coalesces mm-hmm. into this possible climactic change that really just you know puts a puts a stake down in in a transition between yeah. eras. Yeah, and then <clears throat> in the wake of that. You know, it was a good 300 years. This, the, the three centuries, so right up until the 900s, um, was what's typically called the Dark Ages. And it was not a very pleasant time. Um, you know, and, and there are many accounts, you know, from, from monasteries and so forth, monks who were, you know, keen observers of the weather and climate, talking about how, you know, for weeks on end, they barely saw the sun, that there was this shroud of of haze in the sky, um, you know that the that the summers were short and cold, lots of damp and rainfall. Um, and it's called the yeah, Dark it's, Ages. Now, yeah, it's called the Dark <laughs> Ages, but that's not one. It's not just metaphorical. That's the point. Right. I've never I've never thought about it in that way. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. Uh, Let's see here. Let me see if I can find... Um, okay, this is from Jeffrey Ash, who was a Grail scholar. I think he's deceased now. In his book, Mythology of the British Isles, somewhere in Arthur's Britain, there was a mysterious castle in the possession of a custodian called the Fisher King. He was partially crippled by a wound, and the land round about was a waste. No one knew where the castle was, when Percival came to it by chance and was hospitably received by its lord, he saw a procession of young people bearing strange objects. One of them was a lance with blood dripping from its point. A maiden carried a splendid vessel studded, studded with jewels. It had a supernatural power of nourishment. The Fisher King's father, concealed from view in another room, lived on a single mass wafer, placed in it daily. Percival, though mystified, had been taught that it was discourteous to ask questions and did not inquire the meaning of what he saw. He learned too late that he should have done so. If he had, the spell would have been broken, the the Fisher King's wound would have healed, and the wasteland would have become fertile again. Hmm. So I think that you can see, like in so many of the myths of of olden times, there is a generous dose of historical truth in there, concealed within the symbolism and the the metaphors and and so forth, um, the packaging that it's placed in. But you know, it's just it's just too coincidental to to look at the dating of the historical Arthurian tales, the setting, and then realize that in, completely independent of that, paleoclimatologists have, have discovered evidence of a climate catastrophe, probably the most severe climate catastrophe to have engulfed the Northern Hemisphere in the last 2,000 years. And that for a while, Britain was literally a wasteland. <clears throat> and then a few hundred so, years after that, they're growing wine in Britain. And then a few hundred years yeah, after then, that, then, they can't go. They can't grow wine there anymore. 
So the the, the, the climate right. fluctuations. So the medieval, yeah. Yeah. The medieval warm period came on in the 900s. <clears throat> One of the things that happened as a result of that is the sea ice uh, retracted to the north, and it opened up the sea lanes that allowed uh, navigation between Scandinavia, the British Isles, Iceland, and ultimately Greenland and North America. And, you know, you had a, a Viking colony established on the west coast of Greenland during that medieval warm period, and then um, it was there for about 400 and some years, and then it disappeared. It went extinct, right? And this, the extinction of that community, of those farming communities in Greenland coincided with the onset of the first phase of the Little Ice Age and the re-expansion of the, uh, of the northern ice flows that basically cut off Greenland from Europe. And because during the medieval warm period, you had trade going on between Greenland, Iceland, Iceland, and northern Europe. And then with the onset of the Little Ice Age, the sea ice expanded and it cut off Greenland. So either they're now in a situation where they're going to either adapt or die. And presumably a lot of them died, probably starved to death. Some of them may have gone native because the, um, the native peoples were able to successfully adapt um, and thrive even with the – in other words, they, when the sea ice expanded, they learned how to hunt on the ice. Right, whereas the the uh, the Scandinavians were completely committed to their farming, and farming became impossible. So, the Scandinavian communities in Greenland went extinct, and I think there could be sort of a microcosmic lesson there, in that you have two communities side by side, one that was ad highly adaptable, and the other one that was rigidly entrenched into uh, certain behavioral patterns, didn't adapt, and they went extinct. But, yeah, so then you had the Little Ice Age. So you had that interim between 900 and the late 1200s um, <clears throat> where, yeah, there were growing wine grapes in, in England. <clears throat> you know, the, the, the Scandinavians are farming on the west coast of Greenland where you can't farm now. Um, maybe you can, you know, if warming continues for another 20, 30 years, maybe you can. Right. But I suspect that may not be the case. Um in in any case, you had um, you had major climatic changes that occurred, and it was during the period during the medieval warm period where growing seasons increased by weeks, if not a month or two, um, and you know also the uh, elevation at which crops could be grown increased. You know, went up up elevation, up mountain sides, and so forth, and you had. Uh, a whole series of very abundant crops where people had a lot to eat. Um, so people started, what you see is, as you come into the medieval warm period, you see lifespans extending. You see infant mortality decreasing. You see the stature of people increasing quite rapidly um, once they have plenty of nourishment. Um, and then after a century, century and a half of this warmth, European society has created enough surplus that it's able to support, you know, these armies of craftsmen that built the great Gothic cathedrals, which couldn't have happened, you know, couldn't have happened during the, the Dark Ages because, for one thing, there was no labor pool um, to draw from um, because population increased significantly during the medieval warm period. So it's also interesting that the rapid 
termination of the Gothic building enterprise coincides exactly with the onset of the first phase of the Little Ice Age in the early 1300s. Yeah, that's where you start and, to get the you know, Hundred Years' War. You start to get almost kind of like this, this uh, and and the Black Death and all these things that happened at the same exactly. time. Exactly, I think the Black Death was in the 1340s, um, and and of course once the Black Death happened, which again, just like the Justinian Plague. It came in the wake of a whole series of agricultural failures, of crops rotting in the field and people not having enough to eat. And so, you know, a generation of that, and, and people got weak and they, their immune systems became susceptible. And then, yeah, you had the bubonic plague that came along in the 1340s. And then once that happened, boom, that was, that was the end of it. You had no more late, huge labor pool to draw from. And that was the end of the Gothic building enterprise to a large extent, not completely, but to a large extent. <clears throat> yeah, because you, so have, yeah, this, mean, you <clears throat> have this even 12th, in the short century, term. 11, 12th and 13th century, 1100s and 1200s Renaissance that is kind of like broken by the, the plague and by the wars and the climate yeah. change. Yeah. Well, and then the Renaissance comes right, you know, there was a, a phase one and a phase two of the Little Ice Age. And there was complete, there was most definitely a volcanic component to that because we know that now that's you know new discoveries are showing um, you know volcanic ash uh, and isotopic signatures showing up in ice cores that show that there was uh, enhanced volcanism associated with the coldest periods of the Little Ice Age and the most recent one would have been the eruption of Tambora in 1815 you know Tambora is down there part of that Sunda arc in Indonesia, and it erupted in 1815, and in 1816, you've probably heard of this, it's called the year without a summer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And scholars who have looked at that call it the, the last great subsistence crisis in Western civilization, uh, because you had mass starvation, because again, you, you know, you, in, in New England, in July 4th, they were having a July 4th celebration um, in a snowstorm, basically. So, yeah, the 1816, year without a summer. And, and it took three, four years before the skies cleared from that eruption. And, uh, and you know, we're learning that, yeah, those big volcanic eruptions are having a, an enormous effect. The sulfate aerosols that they eject into the atmosphere can block the sun. Um, so it's not only just a matter of the ash and the dust that darkens the skies, it's also the sulfate aerosols that, that um, are absorbing the solar radiation up in the stratosphere and present, preventing it from reaching the surface of the Earth. So you have these global cooling events. And, you know, here's the thing. We, we built a civilization that's quite vulnerable, really, to the kinds of natural climatic and environmental changes that have now been overwhelmingly documented. And I just don't think we're, we're paying enough attention to that, you see. We're so busy beating up ourselves um, that we're in the driver's seat now that I think, no, um, I think maybe we're not. And we need to seriously consider that there are other factors and learn from these examples in history and prehistory that are, you know, both are replete with these examples of civilizations that were highly stressed, if not exterminated altogether by natural variability. Hmm. Yeah, it seems it's it's a it's an ongoing it's an ongoing process and it's an ongoing story 
Because when I, I think I've told you this before, when I look at this concept that we call Atlantis, it's almost to me that we're talking about many civilizations that have been destroyed by these natural processes. Like I, mm-hmm. like, like in my opinion, when I look at the what Atlantis that Plato was writing about, I think could have been Crete and Santorini. We know that that primarily was due to the volcano eruption. You have mm-hmm. whatever happened in the Black Sea area, where this basically this natural dam gave way and just flooded this entire area mm-hmm. and you have the bronze age collapse on which is which you you have things that are lost from it and mm-hmm. then you have whatever happened in the younger dryas which the possibility that there was so it's that there that there was a catastrophe that ended some kind of maybe more advanced civilization then you know th- this seems to be an ongoing process and and it's a, it seems to go in cycles it seems to go in cycles. Yeah, there, there, there's evidence that yeah that there's a cyclical nature to some of these things, and uh, yeah, you know, my reading of of Atlantis, <clears throat> which is primarily based upon Plato's dialogues, um, there's not a lot other than, than those. I mean, a few comments by um, Proclus based upon the writings of Crantor. But, again, we don't have the original writings of Crantor. I wish somebody would find those someday and discover that, oh, yeah, here's a whole other account of Atlantis. But most of what we have on Atlantis comes from Timaeus and Critias. Um, but what he's describing really is more like uh, a more elaborate Minoan or Phoenician civilization. A, he's describing a, a, a maritime culture. He's not describing crystal technologies or flying ships or aliens or anything like that. People riding dinosaurs. No, no, I don't recall him talking about riding dinosaurs. Um, I think that came along later, right, with with Fred Flintstone? (laughs) Yeah, something like that. (laughs) Yeah, I think that was a later concept. um, Anyways, yeah, so um, what he's describing really sounds like maybe a scaled-up version of the Minoan culture. Um, They're carrying on navigation and trade. They have colonies. There's nothing so extraordinary about that. Yet, interestingly, still, although not as much as, as, you know, three, four, five years ago when I first started presenting some of this information on a larger scale, like on on Joe Rogan and stuff, um, people would say, Oh, well, I was listening to his stuff, and then... I heard him say Atlantis, so I knew uh, this is a bunch of bullshit, so I turned it off. <laughs> oh, okay. And, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of that, a lot of that, you know. Like, you can't even mention the word Atlantis, and all the 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 the, the idiots that, you know, I mean, you probably have heard of the, the Dunning-Kruger effect. You familiar with that? I'm, not, fam- I'm not familiar with it, but is it maybe just like people go to a preconceived notion is that the concept well it's basically people who are too stupid to know they're stupid okay well, yeah, yeah. there's plenty of those and there's a lot of those <laughs> yeah. yeah there are a I lot of those i was giving them too much credit randall i <laughs> <laughs> yeah you are yeah people who are too stupid to know know how stupid they really are yeah and, you know i i see their their remarks all the time you know to which i would say okay i so you've read Timaeus and Critias, you've read Plato's dialogues, 
and you know what he's talking about there. And But, of course, no, they wouldn't even be able to tell you the name of a platonic dialogue. Um, <clears throat> in fact, I've, the same thing with, I am talking about the Holy Grail, so I knew he was full of crap, you know. Um, so, you know, it's like, okay, well, never mind. I'm not, I'm not really too interested in trying to educate you anyway, so you can go back to whatever rock you crawled out from and just stay there and quit bothering the rest of us. But, um, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of misconception about some of these things out there. Um, and certainly the grail is, is an example of that. And Atlantis is a, is an example of that. Um, where people think that, you know, somebody, well, I'm, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a rational person, so I don't believe in Atlantis. Anybody knows that that's, fiction or but just like with all myths you what you have to do is you have to look and realize there's a core of of truth to these things now whether what form that takes you ha it takes study and in scholarship to to extract that information but um the atlantis story and you know plato repeatedly uh, confirms the veracity of the account he you know a lot of the commentators later said well he just meant it as a as a metaphor for his idealized version of of, of uh, um, the political state, right? And he didn't mean any of it literally. Yet, if you read the dialogues, he says over and over again, "Yeah, this, this is. I, I do mean this literally. I'm not making this up. This I heard this, and I'm telling you it exactly how I heard it." So, I mean, his own his own words states the the veracity of the accounts. So, you know, did he make it up? Maybe, but maybe not. So we have to look, and then when you follow his clues, what you discover is that his geography and his geology and his astronomy are, are right on. I mean, you know, when you start looking at the specifics, as I've done, taking it detail by detail by detail, you discover that, um, see, and my problem with, with the, the Santorini thing is you have to alter his account by an order of magnitude, because the, the eruption of Santorini was around 900 B.C., roughly, I think, right in there. And, of course, he is placing the, the, the final destruction of Atlantis at 9,000 B.C. You see, actually 9,000 years before Solon's exile in Egypt, which apparently was between 500 and 600 um, yeah. B.C. I, I, so I almost think that, that I would... I almost think that I would explain some of that as just this this kind of confusion of everything was being lumped together. All these different civilizations may have been being lumped together into one thing. Mm-hmm. And and the the, the the Minoan civilization on Crete, I, I mean, it suffered a catastrophic collapse. It may have not been in one fell swoop. It may have been like it got it got walloped a couple of times and then it struggled to to recover and then it got walloped again and couldn't recover but yeah there are many instances of like you just said to the bronze age collapse which occurred all around the the shores of the mediterranean you had you know clearly natural disasters i think that that uh precipitated this uh cultural response and in some cases it may have ultimately had an extraterrestrial cause to it if not, you know, endogenic means within the earth, in this context, exogenic from outside. So I think it's a combination of both. 
Um, I think we we have episodes of extreme volcanism, which can right. play havoc with the with the climate, and then we have many many more extraterrestrial or cosmic factors to consider. We've been talking about the sun. We've been talking about impacts. Hey, if nothing else, there's the possibility of the accretion of cosmic dust, which could increase the opacity of the atmosphere, reducing solar radiation and bringing about a general darkening and cooling of the climate. So, I mean, there are many factors we need to be looking at here. Also, fluctuations in the Earth's geomagnetic field, which is which is another factor that needs to be uh, looked at. Um, you know, the 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 um, the uh, solar magnetic field, uh, the galactic cosmic rays, as we were talking about. All of these things are now factors, and this is why I've been saying for years now, we really need to start thinking in cosmic terms. And if we really want to understand terrestrial ecology, we have to think in terms of a cosmic ecology, because many of these factors, including likely the introduction of organic molecules and things into the biosphere might ultimately be cosmic. So we need to be looking at, at, at a larger frame. In order to understand global change, we have to look at it in the context of this of the larger cosmic framework. Yeah, and I agree. endogenic, volcanic could in some cases be a response to changes in the cosmic environment. I'm, right now, I'm, I'm immersed in the study. I've kind of come full cycle around, and I'm looking back at the, uh, the Cretaceous tertiary extinction of 66 million years ago when the dinosaurs and the ammonites and various other, the graptolites and the polysipipods, I can't hardly say that word, um, disappeared. And it appears that it was a combination of cosmic and volcanic because that was when you had the outpouring of the Deccan Traps in India, that is now, with new dating, shows that it's, and this is kind of why I've kind of gotten back into it, a lot of the new dating shows that the extrusion of the, the Deccan Traps was much shorter than um, previously uh, estimated, and that um, uh, it was uh, exactly straddled the KT boundary. So it's like you had this major volcanic activity going on that would have been pumping billions of tons of sulfate aerosols into the atmosphere, um, possibly huge, huge um, amounts of carbon dioxide and other volatiles. Um, and then at the same time, you've got at least one great impact, and, and the impact geology is suggesting that there was actually a, a prolonged period of clustered bombardment straddling the KT boundary. So the KT boundary is a, is a good example, I think, of where you have this sort of perfect storm of things going on. Now, there's evidence from Indian geologists that there may have been a major impact into the Indian Ocean. They're calling this, this the crater, the, the purported crater Shiva, uh, and this is the, the, the name they've given to the impact. If there was a large impact into the Indian Ocean um, contiguous with the deck and traps outpouring, that may have been the trigger for it. Um, and that's another thing that I think that, that we're learning is the possibility that a lot of the great um, volcanic events uh, may be um, impact-related. Um, you know, the, there's concern now over uh, Yellowstone and the volatility of, of Yellowstone. Um, but, you know, what you have there is a mantle plume, a deep mantle plume, that goes back mm, 16 or 17 million years, 
and the Columbia Basalt Plateau, which now covers a large portion of eastern Washington, was the uh, the basaltic extrusion from that particular mantle plume that is now under Yellowstone. Well, David Alt, uh, a geologist from that region, proposed in a book God, about 20 years ago that you may have had a a major impact that that due to the density of the object, its velocity and its angle of approach was able to punch largely through the crust and through pressure relief melting allowed this upwelling of magma and and literally created the magma magma plume that is under Yellowstone. And I think that's a very interesting idea that, you know, right now the, the, the dominant ideas about mantle plumes is that they're totally endogenic. They're completely um, subject to internal terrestrial processes. But I think we're seeing more consideration of the idea that at least in some cases they may be externally triggered. <clears throat> and if that's the case, you know, then we're, we're having to look now at, you know, reconsider things like geomagnetic field reversals, which may be related to impacts, um, large episodes of volcanism, which may be related to, again, changes in the cosmic environment. We need to be looking at, at a much more variable sun uh, than anybody was thinking about 20 or 30 years ago. And, yeah, we're, we're at a whole new stage, a whole new threshold of understanding how our world works. <clears throat> and this is why I get frustrated, because it seems as if there's an, an attempt to constrict the discussion and the dialogue to pre-approved ideas. And... Some of these other ideas, which I think are as important, if not more important, are getting marginalized. Because, I mean, how often do you pick up the paper and read about the climate crisis that we're in the midst of compared to new research on the, the dynamic variability of the sun? I, I, I don't even see a, a comparison, because every day I go online or I pick up the paper, I turn on the television, and there's something about the ongoing climate crisis. You know, the, 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 the spate of tornadoes we had last week, you know, clearly climate crisis, right? Um, every, every weather event now is part of the climate crisis. Um, and the climate crisis is, again, presumably all brought on by a 100 parts per million increase in carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere. And I think it's fair to question that. I think it is, too. And I think that's a good place to close it up. Um, we, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, Randall, what we're going to actually do yep. with you, we're going to do something we don't normally do. Uh, we're going to close the show with you on air, if you don't mind. No, I don't mind. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> first, <laughs> first of all, uh, tell people where they can find you and uh, see all the, the great work that you're doing. And if anybody doesn't know well, Randall Carlson now, by now, I mean, you've been living under a rock, yeah, so I don't yeah. know. <laughs> well, uh, Geocosmic Rex, Brad Young's put up a website. You know, he's been my traveling buddy for a quarter century now, and he's documented extensive documentation <clears throat> um, of a lot of the stuff we've been doing, and he's been filming lectures and seminars and field trips. So you got a whole bunch of stuff on Geocosmic Rex. That people can find, and uh, Sacred Geometry International, which is um, Cameron Wiltshire put that um, website together, and it also has a lot of great information on it. Um, 
things that people can download, articles and essays that I've written and so on. Um, I think you're going to, um, and there's going to be more. Um, you know, I'm, I'm writing regularly now, and one of my goals before the year is out is to have, have my first book finished. Um, I've got about 90,000 words written so far. Um, need to write about another. I'm going to try, I'm going for about 120,000 words. Um, and then, you know, that needs to be cleaned up and edited and so on. And I don't know how long that's going to take, hopefully not too long. Um, but yeah, I'll be covering a lot of this stuff. It's going to kind of be a smorgasbord introducing people to some of these ideas. And then I've got a couple of follow-up books. I'd, I definitely want to do a book on the grail and where we really get into a, a deep analysis of the symbolism and the correlations, uh, some of the stuff that we were talking about this evening on the, um, in the interview, um, and some of the science that supports this fundamental idea, which, which is one of the ideas I'm proposing uh, uh, to be tested hypothetically, which is that the grail is a symbol for a technology whose purpose is restoration of the wasteland. In other words, it's a technology that's designed, whose purpose is to restore fertility and stability to the land, the planet, whatever scale you want to look at, in the wake of a natural catastrophe. And that's essentially the, uh, the premise that I'm working from um, in, in, this, um, in the material that I'm writing on the grail. So I've got several things in the pipeline that hopefully will be out there by the end of the year. Uh, we're also possibly looking at some more field trips. I would like to do a, I've got several really awesome field trips in mind, um, you know, similar to what we just did these past couple of weeks in Colorado. So, you know, there will be, oh, so people go to your website, go to Grimerica also. Yes. Um, there will be announcements on, on that. The Brothers of the Serpent, who were participants in the, uh, the, 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 um, Adventures out in Colorado are posting information on their website, on their podcast site, um, and I'm probably going to do another podcast with them in the near future. Um, so there, there, there's a bunch of sources out there um, that people can access. Um, Geocosmic Rex, you'll have over a hundred video clips you can watch. Cool. Yeah, man. Very cool. Very cool. I'm looking up the Brothers of the Serpent right now. Um, thank you so much, Randall. Uh, stay on the line for us. We're going to close out the show real quick. Uh, Seraphiel, tell everybody where they can find us on Patreon. Where you they can, can go sign up to support us. To patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Make a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. Absolutely. Send us some money. Um, all right. Well, that's it, guys. Uh, we, we're gonna we're just gonna end up. The, we're just gonna end the interview. We'll find a place to put the advertisements, I guess. <laughs> so. Uh, Guys, join us next week. We'll be back. We're going to talk about some reincarnation and uh, some near-death experiences. Looking forward to it on Conspiranormal.
leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.